and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. But, uh, as, as, you, as you go through the book of Revelation, I was wondering, kind of like, you know, if, if you were to, you don't have to answer this out loud, I mean, if you want to, go ahead, but like on a scale of one to ten, how familiar with you are the book? Like, you know, maybe one is like, what's Revelation? And ten is... I've got a doctorate, um, you know, uh, kind of somewhere, everybody I think has some degree of exposure to it. Uh, but as we go through this, it can be a book that's confusing. Um, and, I'll, and I'll share with you a little bit of why as we go through that. Uh, but it's also one of these books where uh, as, we, as we jump into it, kind of the question on your hand out there is when you think of the book of Revelation, do you think grace, peace, and blessing? Um, as we look at the first eight verses, John says that that's the reason that this revelation has been given to him. It's to bless people who read it and hear it and keep it. But it's also uh, given so that we can live in God's grace, his undeserved favor towards us, and his peace, uh, this, this state of harmony and tranquility uh, that, that ro- resides on the souls of those who rest in Christ. And so that's the point of the book. Now, as you go through church history or maybe your own life, you know that it's actually a book that's caused a lot of contention. Um, And so I imagine if John were to step into one of the arguments that Christians have with each other about the book of Revelation, he'd be like, hold on a second. Did you not read the first eight verses? Like this is supposed to be a blessing to you. It's supposed to be something that causes you to to experience God's grace and to live at peace with him. Um, And so anytime that we find ourselves in a conversation, conversation with with others or maybe we feel an unrest in our soul because of the way that uh, this book has been presented to us that is not God's intention Uh, his intention is that it would be a blessing to us that we would understand and live in his grace and be at peace with him regardless of the circumstances in our life that's the point of the book okay and so we'll go through that and I'll share with you why that is the case Uh, and, and it has everything to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus promises he will do when he returns um but uh, as you look at the book, uh, this is written by the, uh, the Apostle John. And so John was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples and one of the inner three. He's one of the people that saw things that other people did not see. John and James and Peter, like the transfiguration, they were there for that. Many times Jesus would have a conversation with a large group, and then he'd have a conversation with a small group, and then he'd have a conversation with even a smaller group, and that would be John, James, and Peter. So John, he calls himself the, the one that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. That's how he refers to himself because he has this love relationship with Jesus as his Messiah, as his Lord, as his God. He views it that way, that there's this, uh, not in a weird way, but he loves Jesus and Jesus loves him. There's this uh, bond that they have because of how uh, the time that he's had and the relationship that he has with Jesus. And so uh, we know that that's who John is. He wrote the gospel of John. He also wrote uh, first, second, and third John letters to churches. Uh, 
Um, we also know that he was a leader in the early church. And so he was somebody that was uh, stationed in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus being in modern day Turkey. Uh, there's, there's some verses here that it says to the seven churches in Asia. When you hear the word Asia uh, within the Bible, it's in a Roman context of the time. And that was Asia Minor, an area that we understand to be modern day Turkey. So don't think China when you hear Asia. He's talking about modern day Turkey. But he was there in Ephesus. He was an elder at that church. He was a leader in that church. Um, and somebody that people look to for personal eyewitness accounts of what it was uh, to be there when Jesus did what Jesus did. Um, John was an eyewitness of his ministry. He was an eyewitness of his death, his, his resurrection, his ascension, all of these things. John saw them. And so he holds a degree of apostolic authority that others don't. Um, most people believe that the book was written around 95 or 96 AD. There's an earlier uh, view as well that's in the late 60s, but uh, based upon the accounts from early church fathers, uh, it's believed that John was exiled to the island of Patmos during the reign of Domitian, uh, the Roman emperor Domitian, who died in 96 AD. And so uh, that's kind of when we believe the book was written. It could have been a little bit earlier, uh, but it, it most likely was at the end of the first century. Uh, as we read this book, you're going to see if you're exposed to the Old Testament, you maybe you've read Daniel and Ezekiel or Zechariah, uh, some of those books. It's very similar in its style, that it's there's a lot of symbolic language and uh, apocalyptic literature. Um, and so when we go to understand the symbols, when we get into these later chapters, uh, the first three chapters are pretty straightforward, but four through 18, there's a whole bunch of different views on this. And then uh, 19, 20, and 21, there's, there's a fair degree of uh, accordance between believers on, on what uh, is happening there. But when we get into the more difficult chapters, we'll, we'll look back to the Old Testament, Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, a little bit of Zechariah as well to understand the symbols that are within this book. And so it's one of these books where uh, the interpretation, there's been several different approaches, and that's produced a wide variety of understandings of the book. Uh, if you have your hand on, I encourage you to follow along with me on this. Um, so there's, there's basically four major views on the book of Revelation, okay? And the first one is an allegorical or non-literal. Uh, this was popularized in the 3rd and 4th century in the Alexandrian School of Theology. Uh, Augustine of Hippo is largely credited with, may, may, your handout says establishing, maybe not so much establishing, but making this a very popular view. Um, within the within uh, the view of Revelation. Uh, this view looks at the events of Revelation as a chronicle of the spiritual conflict between God and Satan that are being fulfilled in the current church age. Okay, um, it, it views... Uh, it doesn't view Revelation as something that's going to be a future event so much as events that are happening in and around us. And so this allegorical view is where, if you're familiar with some theolo theological terms, um, the, the phrase amillennialism, which means no millennium. There's a view within the book of Revelation that there's a literal thousand year reign of Jesus at the end of time. This view rejects that. And it says actually that all of the language that we're dealing with is symbolic. And these are cyclical events that we're seeing within the church age. Okay. So so you can look at a different symbolism and metaphors and go, oh, that's how that's happening in our current context. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're in the end times. It just means that we see these cycles throughout church history. So that's one of the views. Another one is called the preterist approach, and this sees Revelation as having taken place in a symbolic manner during the early church conflicts. And so this one's going to deny future viewpoints of the book, particularly verse in verse, or excuse me, in chapters um, four through eighteen, and seeing these things as things that are 
past events that took place in the early church. Um, and this is where the, uh, another view, so we have amillennialism, that means no millennial kingdom, uh, literal way. Postmillennialism comes from this view, that the, the idea of Jesus' rule and reign took place past, um, and it's something that we are on the other side of, okay? So that's a post-millennial view, um, also known as the preterist approach. Uh, the historical approach was popularized during the Middle Ages and sees Revelation as a symbolic picture of total church history in the present age between Jesus' first and second coming. If this sounds similar to the allegorical view, it's because it is. Um, uh, and so people that held this view would have been like Martin Luther was, was somebody that was... Uh, um, very popular in moving this view. Uh, the, the, the early church uh, that then becomes the Catholic church, and Augustine is going to be a big part of that. Um, so they have this allegorical or symbolic view of the book of Revelation. And when Luther comes during the Reformation, a lot of things change, but the view of uh, apocalyptic li literature stays pretty much the same. Uh, there's some small variances in it, but again, this is going to be an amillennial view that the, there's not a literal reign of Jesus for a thousand years on earth at the at the at the end of the or the, at the end of the end times. Uh, this view tends to focus on devotional and spiritual teaching from the book while denying future literal events, particularly from chapters 1 through 18. And then the fourth view is the futuristic approach, and this sees chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation as events that are yet to happen. Um, so uh, these, these, these chapters, 4 through 18, describe the last seven years preceding the second coming of Christ. Chapters 19 through 22 would be the final judgment, Jesus' literal thousand-year reign from Jerusalem, and the completion of God's redemptive story. So you have those four different views, and based upon which one uh, someone takes or the commentary that you're reading, you're going to get different understandings of what's going on within the book of Revelation. Uh, as we study this at Hilltop, uh, we're going to take the futuristic approach while leaving room to understand other views. Um, but one of the first times that I went through the book of Revelation, it was in a context where it was sort of like, it, it's, there's only one way to understand this and everybody else is wrong. Um, I don't think that's what I want to do with this. I want to take more of a moderate approach to it and say, you know, I'm going to take this futuristic view and, and this is why I'm holding this view um, and, and then teach that. But also say, there's room for us to understand what other Christians believe. Um, and God's desire for us is not to fight over the understanding of this book, but instead uh, his desire and the design of the book is to bless those who read it and so that we can experience God's grace and peace. And so if, if you read the book um, or somebody is teaching from the book and it's causing anxiety or it's causing contention or you to fight with other Christians, it's missing the point of why God God gave it to us, okay? And so uh, we, we want to have an understanding and, and go like, this is, this is I'm going to tell you what I see within this and then why I see that. But I'm also going to say, but here's another view and here's some things that we can learn from that as we go through it. So that'll be the approach that we take as we go through this book. Um, clear as mud? Everybody good? Okay. All right. I know that was like you were just at a seminary class for just a little while. Um, I'll try not to do that to you too much, but it is important to understand our approach as we go through reading this and then based upon that, how are we going to understand it? But also how do we get along with other believers who maybe have a different view than us? So that's the approach. Let me pray and then we'll go through these first eight verses together this morning. Father, as always, we thank you for our time together. Uh, we thank you for those who are in your son, Jesus. They have made a confession of faith, and they are, they are saved by the blood of the lamb, your son, Jesus. We are, our sins are covered and, and no longer remembered. 
Um, we are free from the consequences of our past. We are buried with you and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Uh, you are the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And it's because of who you are that we can stand here in freedom, uh, that we can live our lives in freedom. And so we thank you that that's who you've made us in Christ. I do pray for those that are searching this morning to understand who you are, uh, that as we look at this book and any book of the Bible, that your person and work becomes very clear, uh, that your son Jesus is compelling uh, as the Savior, not just of the entire world, but as us as individuals, uh, that he is a Lord worth following. Uh, Jesus Christ is, is worthy of our allegiance and our devotion. And so we just thank you that you revealed yourself to us, that you've saved us, and that you use us as your vessels to proclaim this message of who your son Jesus is. May we see him in all his glory and splendor as we study the book of Revelation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read verses 1 through 8 with me. We'll read it and then I'll kind of take it apart for you. Um, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so we get an opening to the book, and it says that it's a, a revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. That word revelation in the Greek is where we get our English word apocalypse. Um, it's an uncovering, a, a disclosure, an unveiling. It means to, to make something known. And so what John is saying is that Jesus has given him information on what's going to take place. There's this revelation, an unveiling, an uncovering of what God wants to show us in the future. Okay, things that are going to take place. When you look at the word prophecy in this context, that's what that word prophecy means, future events that are going to take place. He says that he made it known. He also says that these things are going to happen soon. And that word soon, it indicates that the action will be sudden when it comes, not necessarily that it will happen immediately. Obviously, it's been a couple thousand years since this has taken place. In our, in our minds, immediate wouldn't be 2,000 years. Um, but it does mean that things are going to happen in rapid succession once they take place. He says to make it known, and that's, that's to indicate a report. It means to sound the alarm, uh, that God has given us the ability to, to kind of sound the alarm, that when, when we see certain things taking place, we can understand that God is on the move. And then he says that we should be blessed, those who read this, those who hear it aloud, that we would be blessed. And the idea of the word blessed is to have an assured confident, uh, contentment in all circumstances. The idea of being blessed by God is that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, you're content, you're okay. 
Whether, whether, whether it's a, a high or a low, it's all right because God is in control. Whether your nation looks like it's doing really well or whether you're really worried about it, it's okay because God is in control. You can be content. Not that you say these things are good. When, when things are bad, you call them what they are. Uh, but it doesn't mean that when bad happens, you have to freak out. You can rest. You can be at peace because God is in control. That's what it means that we're blessed. And then he says, blessed are those who keep what is written. And that word keep means to observe or guard, to watch over, to pay attention to. Uh, there's an element that when you read God's word, you realize that there are commands within it, that there's things that we are to do. And a lot of times you could read through a passage and you can hear, man, it sounds like there's a whole bunch of things I should be doing and maybe some things I shouldn't be doing. And you can walk away from that and go, okay, well, let me make sure I got my list of shoulds and shouldn'ts and I just keep them really good and then, then, then I'll be blessed. And then you could go, well, that kind of sounds burdensome because it sounds like it's up to me for these things to take place. If I want to experience being blessed, that means uh, do I have to do something? Is blessing contingent upon me? And if you remember one of the verses we looked at last week, it was 1 John 5, 3, and he says God's commands are not burdensome. Uh, when you hear God guiding you, when you hear God giving you direction and commands and he's calling us to be obedient, we shouldn't hear those calls as things that we go, Ugh, okay, fine, right? Like when you're a kid and your mom asks you to wash the dishes and you go in there, like, fine, I'll wash the dishes and, and you're kind of upset about it the whole time. A lot of times we have a tendency to interact with how God is guiding us in our lives in a similar way. It's kind of like, oh, fine, I mean, I guess I'll do that instead of what I want to do. But what happens... If you're, a mature, if you're maturing in Christ, what happens is what you want to do is what God wants to do. And when, when what you want to do is what God wants to do, as the transformation of your life and your character takes place, then, then his commands become not burdensome because you say, well, that's what I wanted to do anyway. The other part of this is, uh, like, we're, we're getting ready to head down, we're, the wife and I and the kids, we're going to have a trip to St. George, we're driving down there tomorrow, and uh, we're looking forward to having a ton of fun together, but if we just sat out on the road and started driving, we could probably get there, but we might get a little lost too, right? Like, it's good to have an idea of a road map. It's good to understand, like, where are the places where we stop and fill up and grab a bite to eat? You know, like, one tank of gas isn't going to get us there, which is really unfortunate with gas prices, right? But it's not going to get us there. But, so we need to know where we can stop. We need to know the places we can fill up. We got six kids. They're going to get hungry. They're going to definitely need to go to the bathroom, right? We need to have a road map. We need to understand what we're doing. And in a similar way, those are God's commands. And not just for a road trip to St. George, but like for your life, God is saying, here's, here's a roadmap for you to follow. This is a blessing, not a burden, right? This, this is a good thing, not a bad thing. And so when God calls us to keep or observe or obey, these aren't things that are, oh man, I guess I'll do that. It's more like, thank you so much for blessing me with direction in my life. Thank you that I know that you're someone worthy of my trust and that when you say this is best, I can believe that it is. Even if I struggle with the idea of it being best, I know that you are good. Even, even if the world around me is screaming that your version of truth or life or ethics or whatever God's roadmap is guiding you towards, even if the world around us is screaming that he's wrong, we know that he's good. We know that he gives us things that we don't deserve, his grace. We know that his goal is to bless us. We know that his goal is to give us peace. And so instead of viewing things that when he says keep or obey or observe, we don't view those things as, oh no. We say, thank you. 
Thank you for the guidance. Thank you for keeping me from getting lost on some weird dirt road, right? Like, I, I don't want to do that. I want to have direction in life. And so God is here to give us that. And that is part of the blessing. One of the reasons you can have contentment in all circumstances is because there's a God who knows everything there is to know about you and your life. You know he knows what's going to happen tomorrow to you before, long before you did. He knows what's going to happen to you 10 years from now. He knows, he knows your entire story and his goal through the entire thing is to bless you. And so when you can see him that way, I think you begin to see that keeping what he has written is not a burden but a blessing. And so that's what this book is intended to be. It's something that's intended to give us an idea of the future, an understanding that God is in control. And as we understand that he is good and he is in control, we can then give over the circumstances of our life and the world to him and allow him to take what we shouldn't try to bear in the first place. He goes on, he says in verse four that this is John and he's writing to seven churches in Asia. In the coming weeks, we'll go over what those seven churches are and some of the things that are going on in those seven churches. One of the things that you'll find in the first three chapters of this book, it will be much like most of our study. Um, you, have, you have direction given to a church in the first century and how they should live and some of the steps they need to take to be obedient to Jesus. That sounds a lot like most of the letters to the churches, the epistles that we study. So the first three chapters, it's going to sound a lot like, hey, this reminds me of studying Colossians or Ephesians or First Peter or whatever the case may be. When we get to chapter four, that's where there's a shift in how the book is written, okay? And so he's writing to these seven churches. Uh, the other thing you're going to see is the repetition of the number seven. There's seven spirits, there's seven churches, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls. There's uh, over and over and over again, this, this um, number seven is used. I almost said the letter seven. Um, but uh, it's used over and over and over again. And uh, it's, it's an idea of completion, okay? And so while this letter is to the seven churches, it's also to the church as a whole, okay, for us to understand. And he says, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Uh, these two words, grace, that's God's undeserved favor. Uh, this is God's goodwill to those who are in Christ. Do you know that God has goodwill towards you? That his desire is for your best? His desire is to, to give you the good and the best from what he has. Not to withhold something from you or to hoard it up or to keep it. But he, his goal is, is, to, is goodwill towards you. He wants to give you what is best. That's grace. And it's also something that we don't earn or deserve. It's not as though God looks at you one day and says, well, you, you did it well today, so now I'll bless you. He blesses us regardless of our performance uh, with, with himself, with his presence, with, with so much more than we could ever even hope or imagine. That's God's good will towards us. Uh, that word peace, it means to have harmony or tranquility with God. Uh, did you know did you know that when you came into this world, you did not come into this world in harmony and tranquility, peace with God? Did you know that before you came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you were actually against him? Instead of having peace with him, you were at war with him? Uh, that, that there's a, an eternal kingdom that he wants you to be a part of, but you are actually in opposition and rebellion towards that? And through who, what Jesus Christ has done for us, his death on the cross, he's actually paid the consequences of, of my and your rebellion. And we no longer stand before God in chains, but instead those chains are broken, and now we stand before him as children. Uh, th this is an amazing thing that he's done for us. Uh, did you know that you, you can live this life 
life regardless of circumstances with a sense of, I know everything around me is nuts, but just like Jesus was asleep on the boat, uh, it's all right. Even though the waves are crashing and the storm is nuts, God's in control, right? And I don't know what's going on in your life, but we have these seasons where maybe the water is calm and then we have seasons where it's really choppy. And it's easy to have tranquility when you're up at Lake Tahoe on a paddleboard on a sunny day. But have you ever been on that lake in a sailboat when the wind is blowing? It's a little different, right? And God's point is that peace no matter what, a sense of he's got this no matter what. He also goes on and he describes Jesus in in this passage here. Uh, That phrase, seven spirits, we'll get into that more. There's two different major views on it. Uh, One of them is that it's talking about angels that are representative of the seven churches. The other one, the idea of seven being completion, that this is the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. Two different views, not super important. Um, And so I don't want to spend a bunch of time on it. Uh, But he says, from Jesus Christ, this this revelation is also from him in verse 5, that he is a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so the faithful witness, that's, a, that's, that's imagery of or language that's representing Jesus' first coming. That when he took on flesh and he walked among us, he showed us grace and truth. He showed us what it is to live in harmony with the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He showed us what righteousness is. There was a lot of confusion about that, but then you watch Jesus do things where he, he maybe he heals somebody on the Sabbath or he hangs out with somebody that was considered unclean and everybody says, he's not righteous, he's not holy. And he's like, your understanding of righteousness and holiness is way off the mark. And so he's a faithful witness to us of who God is and what God's standards are are and what it looks like to live in harmony with God and then bless other people. He shows us that. But then he also shows us things that are harder for us. He shows us that we need a savior. Like when Jesus came, he said he came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to heal the sick, but he came, or he didn't come to heal the healthy, but he came to heal the sick. And within his message is that we're all sick. We all need a healer. That's harder to hear. But then he goes to the cross and he says that he is that healer. He is the one that deals with our sin. He is the one that takes away our pain. He is the one that makes us right, right? And so he's a faithful witness of God's love, right? God loves us so much that he saw us in our situation that we were in, our brokenness and our need. And instead of leaving us there, his son enters the picture and he takes our brokenness on himself. He covers our need and he raises us. That's, he's, he's the firstborn of the dead. And in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it not only proves that he is the Messiah and God in flesh, but it also gives us new life. And so you have his 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 advent and you have his death and his resurrection. And then it says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. At the end of uh, the gospel of Luke and in the beginning of the book of Acts, we see Jesus ascends into heaven and he now sits at the right hand of God, which is a a place of power and authority. He is the one, he, he, who was and is and is to come. He sits in this place of power and authority. Now he is the one who's in control. says, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his, by his blood. Um, God has goodwill towards you and he loves you. Um, he loves you with the, this, this love that the scriptures talk about as agape love, this self-sacrificing love, this unconditional love, uh, this willingness to give of himself for your benefit at great cost to himself. That's, that's God's love for you for us. 
It says that he set us free from our sins by his blood. We were once chained and bound to sin, and now we're free from that bondage. We're now alive in Christ and made new. And he's made us not just new, but he's made us a kingdom. He's made us a a group of people that are part of something bigger. We are if you are in Christ, you are, you, first of all, you're not your own, you belong to him. But the other side of that is you are now part of something that is far bigger than any group or club or political party or whatever else you've ever been a part of. This is an eternal family and kingdom that God has drawn you into. He says that he's made us priests to his God and Father. There's an idea that we are to represent humanity to God and vice versa. Uh, That as God has put us in a position where we offer up prayers and we care for those around us, we act as a priest would where we pray for the people around us and we represent the people around us to God. Uh, That's the idea of a priest. But the other side of a priest is they represent God to the people. And so God has us in a position where we're to share who he is with others around us. Says that's who he is and what he's done. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Jesus is the one who deserves uh, the praise, the glory, the honor. He is the one who's in a position of dominion. The idea of dominion is rulership. Uh, He has that. Nobody else does. And he has it forever and ever. And so as you look at that, the person and work of Jesus are strongly emphasized as the reason and means that people, you and I, can experience God's grace and peace. Without Christ... God's grace would not be known to us to the level that it is. His giving and his love would not be known to us. Without Christ, we certainly would not be at peace with God. But with him, everything is different. And then it says in verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Uh, two key verses that kind of come to mind when you read that. One is Acts chapter 1, 9 and 11. That's where uh, Jesus has told his disciples that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven and there's, there's this ascension in a cloud and they witness it take place and they see him go into majesty and power and dominion at the right hand of the Father. And they're looking up in awe as you and I would too. And two angels appear to them and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stare at the sky? This Jesus who came up this, who went up this way will return in the same way. And so as you look at this, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. It would bring to mind for John who was there at the ascension. Wow, this is going to take place. He is returning. Uh, He will rule and reign in a new way in his second coming. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. They will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. You understand that's who Jesus is, right? He's the only son of God. He is the firstborn from the dead. And people are going to look on him. Uh, This Zechariah passage, this is for the nation of Israel and the people of the house of David. Uh, This text in Revelation reveals that it won't be just Israel or Jerusalem that will see Jesus return, but every tribe, everyone, when he returns a second time, it will be a moment where all of the earth will go, what is happening? Um, And for those of us who understand, it will be a moment of pure bliss. Uh, It says all the tribes will mourn over him. There'll be a a, a mourning for an understanding that they've missed on the Messiah, that they've lost out on, on who he is. And he says, so it will be, amen. 
So within this, we see also that Jesus is going to return. He's talking about a second coming here. Verse 8, we see he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, those being the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I'm the first and the last, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, you have to see this about Jesus. He, he's the one who, who was. When Jesus showed up, he said, he said things that made people really upset because he claimed to be eternal, right? John chapter 8, and he's having this interaction with the Pharisees, and, and he talks about uh, Abraham, and Abraham longed to see his day, and they say, you're not even 40 years old, and Abraham has seen you, and he says, before Abraham was, I am, and he uses a phrase that would have been equated with the Jewish Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, and they pick up stones to kill him because they look at it as blasphemy, but Jesus, in phrases and interactions like that, he's saying he is the eternal one. He is the one who was. Uh, he is, he is the, the faithful witness, the one who showed us God so that we can understand him fully, his grace and his truth and his love and the life that he longs for us to have. Jesus has shown us all of that. He's the one who was. He, he went to the cross and he paid for our sins and he rose from the dead and then he ascended into heaven and he is the one who is in control. He was and he is in control. He is seated in majesty. He is the one overseeing everything that happens on this earth and the details of your life. He's involved and he cares. He is. And he is the one who is to come. He promises to return. One of the things that, that helps us in life, uh, as far as peace is concerned, anybody in the room ever been seriously hurt by somebody else? Anybody in the room ever hurt somebody else? One of the things that we understand in Jesus' return is that he is going to right all the wrongs. He's going to deal with sin and death once and for all. And so you see a phrase in the book of Romans that says that we're not supposed to take vengeance because vengeance belongs to God. And so when you get hurt, what do you want to do? You want to lash out. You want to hurt in return. And what the gospel teaches us really clearly is that when we're hurt, uh, and you can look at 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When, th when people mocked him and did negative things to him, he, he could have done any number of things. But instead what he did is it says that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so what God calls us to do when we're hurt is not lash out, not retaliate. But instead we understand this, that one of two things will happen with the wrong that others have done to us and the wrong that we have done to others. One of two things will happen. Either belief in Jesus will take place and the consequences of sin will be poured out on him or when he returns, those who have not trusted him will deal with the one who judges justly finally. And so uh, we can live our lives, again, peace and tranquility, this idea that I don't have to respond in negativity. I don't have to lash out and hurt those who hurt me. I, I don't need to do that, but instead I can entrust myself to him who judges justly. And the one who was and is and is to come, he will deal with sin once and for all. Either as people place faith in him and they receive forgiveness of sins through what Jesus has done, or they take the weight of their own sin upon their shoulders. I don't have to lash out. I can live at peace because God is good, God is in control, and God is just. He's the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. 
And so as we close this up this morning, looking at these passages, as we study the book of Revelation, we must see this as God's final answer to the completion of his redemptive story. When you look at the Bible, you can basically put it into four things. You, you see that God created us and he loves us. You see the fall take place and we sinned against him. And then there's, I mean, that's Genesis 1 through 3, right? And then we, we have the, this entire story of the rest of the Bible that is redemption. So you have creation, fall, and then there's this redemption story of God saving us from the consequences of our sin. The book of Revelation, as we go through it, is you can use the word restoration or consummation. The idea that God is going to restore things as they were within the original creation to peace and harmony with him. Or consummation being the view that he is bringing all things to completion in his redemptive story. He's not going to leave anything untouched or undone. He'll take care of it all. So we need to see the book of Revelation that way. And so as we go through this, the point isn't to get caught up in the symbolism of characters like the beast, the Antichrist, Babylon, the four horsemen, and so on. We'll study all those and we'll talk about the views that go into them, but they're not the point. Um, likewise, it's not to get caught up in timelines or systems of theology. I'm amillennial, I'm premillennial, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. Uh, those systems of theology, they're okay, but again, they're not the point. Uh, as we go through this, we want to leave room for understanding and, uh, and, and be able to have good conversation with fellow believers who have maybe different views on this. But those views are not the point. The point is the person and work of Jesus. And as John emphasizes here, the goal of Revelation is to give those who read it an assured contentment in God in all circumstances, that we would be blessed. God's, God's goal behind this is no matter what's going on in your life, calm water, choppy sea, you can be content in him. That's the blessing he wants you to have. It's to allow those who are in Christ to live in God's goodwill or grace towards them. God wants you to understand and live in that goodwill. And it's also to allow those who are in Christ to live in harmony and tranquility with God here and now. I think one of the misnomers that we have within our idea of life on earth is that we have to wait for it to end to experience peace. Like just someday God will call me out of this place. I'll fly away and I'll be done with this nasty world. Like that's not what God has in mind for us. He has something so much more for us that we would experience harmony with him and peace now. And so all of that's based upon who Jesus is and what he has accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, um, appearances, and ascension. The other thing is it's all of what Jesus has done, but it's also what he's promising to do when he returns. That's where a lot of that blessing and peace and grace comes from. And so there, there's some application questions for you to look at um, and, and kind of think through this passage a little bit more. I encourage you to read ahead. Uh, next week we'll be looking at uh, the rest of chapter one if you want to read ahead and come back and be a part of that. Uh, I, I just really hope that as we go through this, we can see, not get caught up in symbolism or systems of theology, but who is God and how does he want to bless us in the person of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, this morning we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. We thank you that you understood the condition of our souls. You understood the brokenness of who we were and you didn't leave us there. You didn't walk away from us, but instead you pursued us and that, that pursuit found its completion in your son Jesus. As your son Jesus went to the cross and paid for the consequences of our sin, you've redeemed us. You've bought us back. You created us in love. We fell in rebellion, but you bought us back. You redeemed us in love and justice. 
And God, we, as we read this book of, of Revelation and study it, I pray that we can see the, the end of the story as, as something that gives us grace and peace, that we would be blessed, not confused, but blessed. Because we know that in the end, you are good, you are just, and you win. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.